Hello and welcome to another MLEX podcast. Great to have your company today. My name's James Paniki. I'm MLEX's Australasian Managing Editor, coming to you from a very wet and windy Melbourne, Australia. Today we're asking you to check the smartphone that you have in your pocket or sitting somewhere on your desk right now. Even if it's not an iPhone, the grid of software icons that define Apple's iconic mobile device will be familiar to you. In fact, the design of the grid, known as a graphical user interface or GUI, has become the iPhone's calling card. The problem is that a similar grid has also become the calling card of Apple's main rival Samsung and that has led to litigation between the two companies that's been bubbling away now since 2011. But now it's crunch time. A federal jury will be impaneled this week in Silicon Valley and the eight jurors will have to decide whether the GUI is divisible from the profit of a complete iPhone. And we'll get into the detail of that in just a moment. But this is a question that could ultimately reshape US patent law and also has antitrust implications. MNEX's chief global digital risk correspondent, Mike Swift, has been following this story from Silicon Valley since it began. Mike, great to talk to you. Oh, it's great to be here, James. Now, can we start by explaining what exactly is at stake in this trial? Well, um, a whole lot of money um, at a minimum uh, $400 million, but actually probably significantly more than that. Um, this is the third uh, trial between Apple and Samsung uh, in litigation that began back in 2011. And uh, this is a case that actually has gone all the way up to the United States Supreme Court and has now landed back at the trial court for really a final reckoning for how much Samsung has to pay Apple in damages. And why has it taken seven years and four trials for Apple and Samsung to litigate these patent and antitrust questions? I mean, this is a massive amount of time. Couldn't this have been dealt with uh, swiftly in one court hearing? Well, the wheels of justice turn slowly, as they say here in the United States, but uh, they turn especially slowly when you have uh, two rivals who have essentially unlimited legal resources and are willing to spend whatever is necessary to um, command really um, what has become, you know, maybe the most important consumer product of all time, uh, the smartphone. And uh, um, so what's happened is that there have been Uh, roughly a a dozen appeals uh, from the original trial court uh, uh, trials and that have gone up to the United States uh, Appellate Court for the Federal Circuit and then finally to the Supreme Court. And all those things take time, and uh, that's one reason why it's been seven long years. Okay, well, let's talk about what uh, what they're really dealing with here. Um, we're all familiar with what a, an iPhone looks like when it uh, when it clicks open, but it really comes down to whether or not that GUI that I mentioned in the introduction can be, in a way, decoupled from the mobile phone itself or whether or not it is a part of of just one single product. How are we going about making sense of all of this? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, um, how do you separate the value of uh, a Volkswagen Beetle's shape from the value of the car? How do you separate, uh, you know, the shape of a Coke bottle with, the, you know, the, the, the value of the product? And Um, The thing is, though, you can't uh, patent that whole thing. You can only patent the components. So in this case, we're looking at three design patents. 
Uh, one is, as you said, the GUI, the arrangement of icons on the touchscreen. The other two involve the rec rounded rectangular shape of the iPhone, which is a very distinctive thing, and, uh, and also the, um, the metal uh, bezel, as they call it, that runs, runs around the front face of the phone. We're, we're really talking about the first generation iPhones here because this case has gone on so long. But what's really fascinating here is that uh, we are dealing with um, patent law that in the United States dates back to the 1880s and uh, that was originally developed around the, the shape of uh, silverware that you eat your dinner with. And uh, um, we're now trying to apply that to a modern piece of consumer electronics that has uh, roughly 200,000 patents in it and you know thousands of, of, of parts. And uh, it's really a fascinating legal question that uh, this jury of eight people, whoever they turn out to be, is going to have to grapple with. It's going to be very interesting to see how that happens. And Apple uh, really wants uh, the uh, jury to find that those three elements that you just mentioned can't, in fact, be separated. They all are all part of the one product, and as a result, that original payment that they received um, from Samsung the first time around back in 2012 uh, of 1.05 billion US dollars, that that should remain intact, that that shouldn't be touched. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, Apple is going to argue that, um, you know, we design a whole phone. We don't design a collection, an assemblage of uh, audio jacks and touchscreens and microprocessors and casings. Now we design a whole product and that can't be, um, it, it's not just a bunch of different parts. Samsung on the other hand is going to say, um, say let's, let's assume that, uh, that you have a design patent on the uh, drink holder in your car. Does that mean that uh, anyone who infringes the patent on the, uh, the design of the cup holder should have to uh, pay damages that are based on the profits of the entire car? No, that's ridiculous. So you have you know, two really widely divergent uh, uh, philosophies and arguments here uh, that, that are going to have to be reconciled in this trial. And is this, in a way, the, the, the central existential issue for Apple? I mean, what constitutes, what is an iPhone? That's what we're talking about, isn't it? It, it is an existential problem. And, and the test that um, there's a four-factor test that... Uh, uh, the jury is going to have to deal with that um, deals with some very arcane questions. Um, but essentially what it what boils down to is that under U.S. law and design patent damages are based on a, a three-word phrase, article of manufacture. And up until um, this case went to the Supreme Court in 2016, article of manufacture was presumed to be a full and complete product that you would go and buy in a store. But the Supreme Court said no, uh, in a complex product like a smartphone, the article of manufacture could be the whole product or it could be a, the patented component of the product. So um, th that's what the jury will really have to decide and they will have to, to do that uh, by interpreting this four-factor test which talks about things like uh, the relative prominence of the design element within the whole product and whether the, the patented component is conceptually distinct from the product. So it's a very existential aesthetic judgment that uh, the jury is going to have to make. 
Now, the first trial in this case was called the patent trial of the century. I'm not sure if that makes this new court proceeding the jury trial of the millennium, probably. Let's, let's go with that. Uh, why was it seen as so important back then? So uh, we have to go back in time a little bit, but um, you know, we're, we're t- the the iPhone was uh, went to market in June of 20, 2007, and uh, um, it really took off and started to really change uh, you know the the world in in ways that no one could have uh, anticipated. I mean, it used to be the, inter- the the internet was something you had to go to a computer to find. Well, no more now. Uh, the internet is in this thing that we carry around in our pockets and that is on the the bed table next to our beds at night. And um, what really did that was the iPhone. What happened was that that, uh, Apple had been the number one smartphone maker and then um, all of a sudden uh, a group of Samsung phones were introduced uh, about 2009 that looked an awful lot like the iPhone. And uh, Apple basically accused Samsung of, uh, quote, slavishly copying the iPhone and was able to produce a lot of evidence in the first trial that was very compelling, including a 100-page book that would show each individual feature of an iPhone and then on the opposite page detail how Samsung was going to replicate that specific feature so it would feel just like the iPhone. You know, and ultimately a jury did find that Uh, Samsung had copied and had violated all these patent laws. And Mike, there were also initially some antitrust elements uh, in terms of what uh, Apple was arguing. Can you just run me through them, although they were ultimately discarded, weren't they? Right, that's correct. Um, That uh, Apple uh, alleged that Samsung had um, violated, had abused its power and standard essential patents by um, really asserting these these patents and then uh, charging higher higher rates and uh, ultimately um, that was a claim that was tried to the jury in the 2012 case and it was really the only victory that Samsung notched in that trial. The jury said that Samsung had not violated the Sherman Act. Um, so, so that charge went away. However, um, the jury found that uh, all of these patents, both software patents as well as design patents, were infringed. And what could this trial mean for other technology companies? For example, electric car maker Tesla. What uh, What's at stake for them? Well, um, interestingly, there just was a, a suit filed against Tesla uh, where design patents are being asserted. And um, in this case, uh, the patented uh, component is the windshield wiper of the car. So the fear is if the jury in this case ends up uh, with a very liberal definition of uh, the, the, the test for when uh, design patents can be invoked, that it could be really an incentive for others to file these lawsuits, you know, hoping for a big score uh, or potentially just hoping to sort of scare the pants off an adversary and uh, get them to pay a large settlement, you know, with no intention of actually, you know, litigating through to a trial. So, um, you know, we'll have to see how that goes. But, uh, you know, it's really going to depend on uh, likely the, uh, the what happens with the appeal, you know, after this uh, trial is over. Either that or we'll all have Tesla windscreen wipers on our um, Toyotas at home. So that will be an interesting outcome. Uh, But uh, this is going to be a reasonably short trial. I mean, it will all be over by the end of this week. Is that right? Yes, that is the plan. Um, It is uh, limited to five days. So uh, it'll be starting Monday with jury selection. Uh, We expect that 
uh, opening statements will be Tuesday morning and then we'll get into evidence and uh, it should all be wrapped up by Friday when it will go to the jury and really it's anyone's guess how long it'll take the jury to reach a verdict but uh, you know we should know uh, by the middle of next week I would guess how this one uh, how this one ended up Mike lovely talking to you as always thank you so much Oh, my pleasure. Thanks, James. Mike Swift is MLEX's chief global digital risk correspondent. He's been covering every turn of this story, and his latest instalment is at the MLEX website for you to peruse and grapple with. And, of course, you can listen to a range of podcasts from MLEX's correspondents around the world. Just go to mlexmarketinsight.com, go to the Insight Centre tab, and click on Podcasts. From me, James Paniki in Melbourne and Mike Swift in San Francisco, thank you very much for your company. See you again soon. Bye for now.